Welcome to the My Intimacy Therapist podcast. I'm therapist and coach, Shade Giovanni. If you want to feel less anxiety in your relationships and enjoy a confident and spiritual intimate life, you're in the right place. So grab a cup of tea and a warm blanket and let's talk intimacy. If you have not listened to the first and second episodes that talk about purity culture, or if you're already familiar, you probably can get a little bit of a pass, but today's episode is building off of that concept and is specifically for parents, people who have children and are trying to figure out, okay, I grew up with really weird messages around my body and sexuality. So how do I help my children not have the same experience? How can I create a more constructive and honoring and sacred and open dialogue around sex for my kids? I don't think a lot of people have memories of having the sex talk with their parents or really getting a lot of information on that. And maybe if you did, it was really brief or it was just one time or there was a little bit of shame sprinkled in there or, 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 right? There's so many different ways it can look, but it is your turn. You get to set the narrative for your children. And this episode hopefully will give you a bit of a framework to think about how to have that conversation. So without further ado, let's get started. So would you like to introduce yourself so that people can know you how you would like to be known? Sure. I'm Dr. Camden Morganti. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I work in private practice in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I also have a writing and speaking career where I'm, I talk about purity culture and the effects of purity culture, um, gender equality and Christianity and some of those topics on podcasts and on social media and writing a book on the effects of purity culture. Yeah, um, of course, you don't want to like spoil the book, but could you <laughs> give a little teaser about what you found in your research or? Yeah, the book's going to be structured around these five myths of purity culture that I've identified and how to um, the effects of the myth and then how to replace those myths with truth. Um, and then how purity culture specifically affects a, d- a few different groups, like how does it affect single people, married people? Um, parents, as we're talking about today, mm-hmm. and teaching kids, um, how does it affect people sexually, um, shame, a few, a few of the big topics that seem to come up. So, um, so it's all about deconstructing the harm of purity culture and replacing it with, um, with the truth. Yeah, I think that replacing part is really important. At this point, most people who grew up in purity culture have learned to reject some of the stuff but I don't know that they've necessarily replaced it. And so it almost feels like a pendulum switch, switch, what's the word? Mm -hmm. Pendulum shift swing, both whatever, (laughs) in like the complete opposite direction. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was very interesting. And I'm sure you're going to give me the link to that to drop in the show notes too. Well, I'm still working on it. So it'll be a while before, before it comes out. But right now, um, writing about it and speaking about it has been a way to kind of refine my ideas and also have discussions and conversations with people, which also gives me a lot of input and feedback and, and just learning how, like the different ways purity affected purity culture affected people. Cause I, I write from my own experience personally, but then professionally what I see as a psychologist. 
Yeah. So let's start with personally, if you don't mind, like what was your personal experience with purity culture, which to anyone listening, if you don't know what we're talking about, that's episode one and two on the podcast for you. So we're just going to pretend you've already listened to it. What was your personal experience with purity culture? Mm -hmm. My experience was I grew up in a conservative evangelical um, family and church, and um, it was waiting, true love waits and, and abstinence before marriage was very much emphasized. And I had a true love waits ring and made that pledge, um, when I was a teenager. And then, um, and then my parents were also proponents of courtship, um, culture and, and wanting me to pursue that, um, because that's how they did it. So they, they assumed that would work for me or that that was the best way to do it. You got to let them know what courtship is. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So courtship or courtship culture is, um, was epitomized in the book. I kissed dating goodbye and just the concept of not dating at all and just praying and trusting that God's going to, um, bring you the person you're going to marry. And that parental involvement is really emphasized, especially fathers usually, And so it's not quite an arranged marriage, um, although some versions of it could be, um, but the version that I think that I learned or was emphasized for me was more about like avoiding dating, avoiding being alone with the opposite sex, avoiding kissing if you can, even, um, any physical or emotional intimacy and just, um, praying and asking God, you know, if you're supposed to marry someone basically. Um, and so I didn't, I did not end up, um, pursuing that option. Um, but I went to a a Christian college that had a very, um, um, emphasized marriage culture of everyone getting married really young and really quickly. Um, and sex tended to be a motivator for that. Um, the desire to be able to have sex and not be sinning. Um, cause if you had sex outside of marriage, that was considered sin, but getting married young and quickly without really knowing the person or being emotionally or financially, et cetera, prepared was okay. Um, for some reason. And so, um, yeah, so I, I went to that, um, went to a college like that and, um, had a great experience at the school, but was, was really affected by that because I did date somebody, um, very seriously thought I was going to marry him and we broke up and I was just devastated that I had played by the rules of purity culture and didn't get the result that I was promised. And so that's why I write a lot about the myths and the false promises of purity culture now, because that's mainly how I was affected. And, um, just the, the doubts that it created in my face, the distance it created between me and God and the shame it created for many years was, was something I had to work through in my twenties. And I think the interesting thing is how we both had different experiences of the same phenomenon of purity culture, but it kind of propelled us both into the careers that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And I think we talked last time about some of the ways that 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 format just doesn't fit. It is not one size fits all because if you have it where, okay, you have to ask the dad for permission to date a girl, like in courtship culture. Okay. What happens if it's a single parent household? What happens if the father is not a role model in any way, shape or form? Um, There's just so many different places that this breaks down. And then, yes, if you do get to somehow successfully follow all the rules and arrive at the finish line and you do not get the ring by spring or um, you break up with someone who's had all the check marks, it leaves you at this, I don't know if you think it's fair to say the word despair, 
But if your entire life was based on this A plus B equals C and mm-hmm. it did not equal C, you're left with the question, then what next? Yeah, exactly. I felt like my faith became a transaction of exactly what you're saying of if I do A, God will do B and I'll get the result that I want. And um, you said despair. The word that described my experience was disillusionment, that I was just very disillusioned by everything I'd been promised by purity culture, which had really been so closely tied up in my faith. Um, And I hear that a lot from some of my um, people who follow me on social media, some of my community, when I talk about purity culture, is that it was hard to even separate their purity or their virginity with their faith or their spiritual walk with God or spiritual relationship with God um, because the two were so intertwined. So it was almost like, am I even a Christian if I'm not a virgin Um, or I'm not pure? Or, you know, for me, it was like, well, I did all the right things and didn't get the results. So is God even trustworthy? Um, Can I even trust him to be good? And so, um, yeah, so that led to, um, a lot of faith um, struggles during my 20s and reconstruction of my faith and and to a more deeper and nuanced faith that I feel like I hold today um, as I was just single and trying to figure figure out my faith and figure out my beliefs. Hmm. And so because today I wanted to talk with you about parenting specifically, obviously that we could have gone so many places with your story and where that left next, but you are a mama now. Mm -hmm. And so there are several mamas out there who've experienced some of what you're talking about. They don't want that to pass on to their kids, but they have no idea how to make that possible or rather, I guess, not possible. And so what would you say about parenting children in a positive light around their sexuality, around their bodies, all of that jazz? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I hear that a lot from my community too, is that um, I'm working through these issues myself and reparenting myself and gaining sex education, working through shame. So how do I not pass that on to my children? Um, And I have a two and a half year old daughter. So we're still early into the parenting journey and, um, and teaching her, you know, everything that we will about sexuality. But, um, but it's, it really does start with you as the parent. It really does start with your own work first and deconstructing the harm um, that you may have suffered from purity culture, the shame that you may still carry or the beliefs that you may still have about your body or about sexuality. Because even if you don't mean to, you might model those or you might pass those on to your kids if you haven't worked through it enough yourself. And Um, The psychological research suggests that just about your own upbringing, even like not specific to sexuality, but being able to look back at your upbringing and have a coherent narrative or, or a understanding, be able to verbalize an understanding of your upbringing and how you were parented and the things that you went through helps you to not reenact those things with your, with your child um, as an adult. So, so it starts with you. I always tell parents that because parents want to know like, well, what do I say? Or how do I handle this? But really the first step is to, to do your own work, work on yourself first. So obviously you do see people in practice, but for anyone who's never gone to therapy or they've gone to therapy and it wasn't around anything like this, especially not sexuality, 
what does that mean? What does it mean to have a coherent narrative? How does someone know if they do have it or don't have it? Mm -hmm. I think talking through and thinking through um, the messages that you received about sex or about your body, about just intimacy or relationships in general, if there are specific pivotal memories or moments from childhood, I think telling the story around those would be helpful to process. Um, the explicit and implicit messages that you received about your body, um, like you may have received that you were, you're too big, you, you know, you're too fat, took up too much space, that your body was not appropriate or not okay. And, um, or maybe you received the opposite, that you were too small, too thin, or, you know, not this enough or not that enough. Um, so knowing what you, like what you heard explicitly, but also what you picked up on through maybe comments your parents made about their own bodies or about other people's bodies, um, definitely been convicted of that having a daughter of being careful about what I say about my own body in front of her. And, um, cause I'm wanting to model healthy body image for her and telling her that she's beautiful and that her, um, body is healthy and strong and things like that. So I need to be able to model that for her, um, in my, the way I talk about myself. Yeah. When you were talking about childhood times, one of the things that came up just forever for me is the three finger rule in mm -hmm. school, mm -hmm. which I grew up both in the North and in the South. So I don't know if this was a thing everywhere. I'm sure Westerners have an entirely different experience, but having to measure how wide your straps are mm -hmm. or how far from your knees they are, because mm -hmm. Lord forbid that your shoulders cause a teenage boy to lose concentration. If that was the reason, I honestly can't think of a legitimate reason to police hmm. to police young girls bodies to that extent where you almost are sexualized or told that you are dangerously sexual before you even understand anything about what sex is mm -hmm. yeah yeah so when we make those arbitrary rules like that and just give them just to girls with the whole reasoning being this will keep boys from being distracted or keep them from sinning or being tempted, um, that really distorts, um, their idea of their own sexuality and their, their body. And, and I hear that a lot from adults that they adult women, that they've got a lot of shame and discomfort with showing their bodies now, even just, you know, wearing shorts or wearing a bathing suit at the beach, you know, that that is so uncomfortable for them, um, for a lot of reasons, this broader culture too, but, um, but a lot of it having to do with Christian culture and the way that modesty was emphasized. Absolutely. Mm. Okay. So let's go into the, the specifics for kids then and what it looks like to train them differently. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, one of the things that we've done differently and that's backed by the research is teaching your children the correct uh, anatomical names for their yeah. genitals. Um, and so that's something that we, we did really early on with our daughter when she was just learning her nose and her arm and all those things and um, all those body parts in the bath is we would say, here's your, here's your bottom, here's your vulva. Um, we would call, call it by those names and it's really no big deal to her, you know, and right. that's, it's just the same as a knee or, a, you know, a foot. Um, and now she's potty training which is super <laughs> exciting. Um, so that's been 
that's been another chance to say, well, let me help help you wipe your, your vulva after you go to the bathroom and things like that. Or she wipes it herself and we're learning. Um, yeah, so that's been something we've done differently. And like I said, research supports that. And research actually suggests that it could potentially um, prevent children from being sexually abused because they know the correct names for their genitals. They might use those if they were being groomed in some way. Um, and then the potential perpetrator would say, oh, wow, this child has knowledge. Like someone's talking to this child, so I'm going to back off. Um, and now, of course, that's not a guarantee. And there certainly doesn't put any blame on parents if their children are abused, if they have or haven't used the, um, the anatomical names. But, but I think that's just a powerful piece of evidence that I want to give my child um, knowledge that's power, you know, that she can use those words if she ever needs to in the future to say, to tell someone to stop or not to touch her there. Right. It's even the communication aspect of a child being able to explain what is happening for them, whether it's pain, whether it's something happened that um, crossed a boundary. But I think at least when I get to talk with people, a lot of the narrative around their first sexual encounter at all it happened really young and if it did involve some form of abuse they actually even if it doesn't involve abuse a lot of people describe their first sexual encounters as being I didn't know what was going on but I knew I wasn't supposed to mm. or I knew it was bad or I knew I needed to hide or I couldn't tell anyone about it mm-hmm And I'm wondering, I mean, there's no way necessarily to trace this directly for everyone. I'm not saying it's a blanket statement, but I'm wondering how much of that is tied to, well, and we can talk about self-stimulation too, but you know, a kid puts their hand around their genitals and there's like this jerk reaction from all the adults and the kid's like, what's going on? I'm just hanging out, you know? And so they kind of learn anything having to do with these general areas are bad. Don't know Mm -hmm. why, but they're bad and I could potentially get in trouble for it. So -hmm. there's no open channel of communication. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So those knee-jerk reactions that are understandable that caregivers would have that kind of a knee-jerk reaction, but those can communicate shame to children. Like we don't talk about that. We don't touch that. We don't look at that. That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. That's bad or dirty. Um, Yeah. So being really careful with how you respond or react when kids touch themselves or when they, um, you know, run around naked or point out their genitals, or even like, like I said, I'm potty training my daughter. So part of that has been taking her to the bathroom with us so that she can see the process and get familiar with that. And so now she's learning, oh, girls sit when they pee pee and boys stand up. And, you know, so we're telling her, yeah, that's because then daddy has a penis. So he stands up, mommy sits down, you know, so, um, so just modeling that this is, this is normal and just, oh, great that you're learning that and you're observing that, you know, and it's not anything secretive or shameful. Oh, that's really cute. And the, I like the idea of, um, oh, what a great question. Or even just your initial response. If you need to have one just on deck, saves a way <laughs> to help mask what might be your own shame and projection. If your kid asks a question, um, creating that open channel, if they say something like, obviously the words baby come from question or, um, 
I don't know if any, I don't know. I haven't heard stories of any child asking this directly, but you know, why, when I touch here, does it feel good or something like that to which most adults that trigger something in them, mm-hmm. but what would you have to say about the, the self-stimulation for children, help people understand what's actually happening. And we're talking about before age nine, eight puberty, mm-hmm. what, why do they touch themselves? Yeah. So when we say self, self-stimulation, you might, um, listeners might be more familiar with the term masturbation, but with kids, they're really just exploring their bodies. You know, you know, a young child puts everything in their mouth and that's how they explore their world. They touch everything, put everything in their mouth, even things we, you know, we cringe at, um, and we have to teach them what's appropriate and not appropriate to put in their mouth. And So they're touching their bodies and just feeling different sensations. And especially once children start to be potty trained and and start to wear underwear and that area is more accessible to them than it was with a diaper, um, touching themselves is going to be more common. And I think parents, again, can have kind of a nonchalant reaction to it. Um, You know, sometimes my reaction is, oh, you've got an itchy. Okay, you've taken care of that, you know, and all right, let's pull your underwear up now. or, you know, for, for kids who would say something like you mentioned, it feels good to touch here. You might say, yeah, there's a lot of nerve endings there. Um, some places of our body are more sensitive than others. Just like your fingertips are more sensitive or your lips are more sensitive or, um, you know, your tummy is more sensitive. And that's why when you get in the pool and the water's really cold on your tummy or something like, so I might just kind of relate it to other everyday things in life to, to show that this is a normal everyday um, experience or sensation. Um, but then also I think you can talk about like, yeah, it feels good to touch there. Um, and that's a a private area that, and we don't touch it when we're outside the house, you know, we wait until we're at home. Um, so there is a a role for parents to teach. Um, of course we want to teach like good touch and bad touch and who, who can touch you there. Like the doctor, when you go for a checkup and mommy and daddy, when we're washing you and, or babysitters or things like that. Um, but we also can teach like it's what's appropriate and, and private areas. And so I think that applies to both self-stimulation or touching um, themselves and also to, to modesty and clothing, um, teaching kids like what's appropriate to wear. That's part of social skills is they learn like what's weather appropriate and what's appropriate for school versus, um, you know, a family dinner or something. So, um, so I frame it in terms of learning this as a social skill, a life skill, rather than framing it in terms of like, oh, that's wrong or shameful. I am curious then, well, I'm sure people are curious if their kids have um, engaged in play where they touch other children. And of mm-hmm. course that enters a whole different ball game. And I think a different level of anxiety mm-hmm. for parents of what do we do when this happens? Yeah, I think that really depends on the age of the children um, and the age difference between the children, the two playmates. Um, if it was really young children, they're likely just going to do it out in the open in front of you because they're not going to know that it's bad or shameful. Um, They really have to have seen a shaming reaction first to learn that that was bad and to then want to hide it somewhere. 
if there was a um, if the children were older or if there was a larger age difference between them, then that would be more concerning to me. So I think it's it's important to definitely be monitoring your younger kids um, when they're playing and to make sure that the age gap between kids is not too big and that there's just good adult supervision and that you've taught your own kids ahead of time about um, safe touch and what's not okay and um, and things like that but but definitely not to freak out when you see it or when you hear about it but to but to just ask questions and and stay calm so that you don't scare your kids or model a really shaming reaction um, but that you can then proceed more calmly and decide what what next steps to take yeah and you know I think even to when it does look more like there's a larger age gap or it's behaviors where you're like, okay, this doesn't look like a child just being curious. This looks like an acting out of something. The modeling part's going to be harder there of not immediately shaming. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really important to get to curiosity because children tend to act out what they seen or observed in some way or the other mm -hmm. and so my thought there and I don't know what you would say to this would be to get curious about the source of where they first saw those behaviors rather than immediately shaming them for having just doing what kids do which is mirror mm -hmm. yeah yeah it would definitely depend on what the behavior is like um, oral sex is not something that kids are really going to be able to come up with on their own. So yeah, that would be something they were exposed to inappropriately um, that you would want to follow through with and, and figure out where that came from and, and telling other parents or things like that if necessary. Yes, which then brings us to the difference between children, prepubescent pre children, and kids who are starting to have sexual feelings, sexual sensations, learning who they are um, in that regard. So what would you say to a parent of a kid who's maybe eight, nine, 12, 13? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I haven't gotten there myself yet. And so, and I don't work with kids professionally. I just work with adults. Um, so it's something that I'm, I'm in my own parenting journey, taking step by step of what do I what do I want to teach and model to my daughter now? But, um, but we'll have to make those decisions. My husband and I have like how we want to teach her about sex and how we want to teach her about interactions with the opposite sex and same sex and just um, appropriate boundaries and things like that. Um, I mean, one thing that's been big that we've started now is modeling like consent, um, you know, for her and that she can learn like how to give consent and how to be respected when she says no. And so we even model that in our own interactions with her. Um, like if she doesn't want to give me a hug or kiss, or if she, you know, says stop when we're tickling and playing, um, making sure that I stop right away. And I've had to, I had to speak up because, um, my, my parents were over and playing with her this weekend and my parents did not practice the same, um, the same 
kind of consent when I was growing up. And so even if we said no or stop, tickles continued or, you know, rough housing continued. And so I heard my daughter saying, no, stop. And my dad was continuing to, you know, rough house and play with her. And I said, dad, we stop when she says that. And he stopped. And I was just like proud of myself because I'm like, I'm speaking up for her because my no stop wasn't respected when I was a child. And that didn't feel good. Um, so now I'm speaking up for her and my dad respected that. And, um, so that just made me feel good that that's something that I'm teaching her and modeling now so that when she's a teenager, like we're talking about this preteen kind of teenage when, um, sexual desires might first or attraction might first come arise, she's able to know that her no should be respected and that her, um, ability to, to give consent or not should be respected. Absolutely. And I think equally as important is that there is an ongoing conversation around this area from when they're a kid, from the first time you're telling them what their vagina is versus their vulva versus penis and all of that. So that as they enter preteen years and inevitably are exposed to sexual content this day and age, we can't really avoid that part as much as we want to protect the kids. They're going to see it or be exposed to it by a friend, but you are a safe place for them to ask questions, curious questions, or just to say, I saw this and I felt something about it. What does that mean? Or I have a crush and I kind of want to kiss them. Whatever it might be. Um, And I'm curious how you, I know you haven't gotten there yet, but how you would set that space for your kids when I think about it um what my heart would want to do is be able to have like outings or you know ice cream who doesn't like ice cream or a trip to the mall or something where it's not this sit down serious like grave conversation almost like you're being scolded but rather Mm -hmm. we're just in life together having fun me and my kiddo And if they have any questions about it, they can ask me or I can say, hey, have you felt this recently? Have you noticed something like that? Um, Just trying to think about if the child doesn't feel super comfortable bringing up a new or strange feeling, if I can open the door for them, it might make it a little bit easier. But those are just my thoughts, not having reached that stage yet myself. What do you think? Mm Yeah, I think providing opportunities where your kids can ask questions and being open to that. Um, A lot of times when I was growing up and I asked questions, I got the answer of, oh, we'll tell you when you're older. Um, You don't need to know that yet. And, you know, eventually it was like, well, I'll just stop asking questions then. And I like wrote them down somewhere, you know, wrote all my questions down, like, you know, a journal somewhere, um, but stopped feeling like I could ask those questions. And then parents wonder why their teenagers don't talk to them or why their teenagers don't feel comfortable confiding in them. I think a lot of it has to do with that kind of a response that parents can sometimes give. And I realize parents probably give those responses because they're just caught off guard. They don't know what to say, but it's okay to say that. It's okay to say, wow, yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to, I have to think about that and get back to you. Thank you for asking me that. Um, I'm not sure how to answer it right now, but let's talk about it again and then follow through with that, you know, follow through with 
look look up the information or talk about it with your your partner or spouse and decide how you want to approach it and then follow up with your kid um, to show that it's that, that you take them seriously that you validate their curiosity and their questions yeah I um that brings us back to what we were talking about earlier of the modeling and a great place for you to start if you're listening right now is to have these conversations with your spouse, not about your kids, but about y'all's intimate relationship. So not even in the context of just, do you want to have sex tonight? Um, that's kind of different, more so talking about when did you first get introduced to sexuality or what do you believe about sex? What do you believe about how God sees sex and having those open chats with your actual partner you learning how to respond to that yourself because I think a lot of these questions we and I'm specifically talking about women don't usually have a response for it's usually I've never thought of that mm -hmm. but then also no follow-up to the okay let's think about that then mm -hmm. yeah because there's so many decisions that that we'll make throughout parenting and you want to be on the same page as your spouse and when I said at the beginning of our conversation, it starts with you. That's part of your own work of how did you first discover porn, you know, or how did you first discover masturbation or what were your dating experiences? What kind of dating experiences do we want our kids to have? Like what boundaries or rules do we want to have in place for dating? And what, what do we want to give them freedom to figure out themselves or decide for themselves? So yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions and a lot of, um, decisions to be made um, that parents have to think through. So what are some good starting places that you have um, for people who are curious? They like what you're saying, but they don't know where to even begin. Maybe their kids are already past the beginning developmental age and they're like, oh, am I too late now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the best book that I have found that recently came out is called Shameless Parenting by Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. I interviewed her on my Instagram and got to talk to her about it because she's like a parenting and shame, shameless sexuality expert. Um, so her book is, is structured with each stage. Like here's the um, the developmental tasks of that stage. She calls it like the job description. Um, so the, here's the job description of a two-year-old, of a nine-year-old and so on. Um, and then she talks about parents, how to deal with your own shame or your own issues around these, around these topics of sexuality and then um, resources for your kids and what's normal and what's a concern. And so a lot of the ideas that I've got myself and that I've been, you know, talking with you are things that have come from that book and just my conversation with Dr. Tina. Um, so that's a good resource to start with. I really like that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to check that book out. Um, I also, and I don't have the name of it on hand, but I saw a picture book for kids that was talking about, what is it like green light, red light? Do you know what I'm talking about? Is, is it like red light, green light, or what's it called? It's talking about the, the yes areas and the no areas and how to mm. give consent, um, probably for elementary school age kids, but okay, I'm going to have to we look have, it up. We have one for our daughter, daughter called, it's not a stork. 
Yeah, it's not it's the not stork. stork. <laughs> it's not the stork. Yeah, and it's about um, the differences between boys and girls' bodies, and then babies, and um, you know how babies are made and born and things like that. So, um, and that's not a faith-based um, resource. So I think it's great because it pre- presents just the facts, you know, without any kind of um, morality or values basis, but then you, you as a family can tailor it to your values. And if you want to say, incorporate, you know, that God created you in mommy's uterus or something like that, um, you can incorporate your own faith and your beliefs in there. I really like that. Mm -hmm. So if someone's listening and they would like to work with you, which I don't know if you're licensed outside of Tennessee as well, or if your work specifically in Tennessee, but let the people know how to reach you. Okay. Yeah, I am um, licensed just in Tennessee as a therapist, but I am um, about to start launching a coaching business so that I can work with people outside of Tennessee. Um, professional licenses restrict us. And so coaching will allow me to work with, with anybody in any state, um, specifically related to purity culture and issues of faith. So so I'll be offering that soon, and you can find out information about that or my writing. Um, I've got a couple of articles on teaching your kids about sexuality and shame-free and also teaching them about purity without the shame of purity culture. So I've got a couple of articles about that on my blog. My website is drcamden.com, and I'm Dr. Camden on all the social medias too, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Very nice. So if there is a mama and a dad out there who wants to teach their kids about all of this stuff, they can look you up for coaching. Yeah. Yeah. I would love that. Yay. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me and taking time out. I very much appreciate that. Thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. Awesome. Okay. So I hope that you have a really big takeaway from this episode that you can hopefully bring into your conversation with your kids whether they are not at the age for this conversation yet or if they kind of have already passed the the mark for starting the conversation it's never too late you know as long as it's happening and remember what we said too if you know, want to know where to start start with your partner asking them questions about their experience revisiting that for yourself figuring out how you feel about it so that you know your basis and what um, biases or filters might be coming up for you. The main idea here though is to create open conversation around sexuality that is not shaming and instead allows for freedom to just talk. This is all about relationship. Everything on this podcast is about relationship and when we bring shame into the picture it really shuts down a relationship and that's not what we want. Okay so as you know Check the show notes to get in touch with Dr. Camden, get her information. And I hope that as you explore this conversation with your kids, you will help them to also feel that they are fully seen, fully known, and fully loved. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We will talk soon.